Okay, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them, turn to or click to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have your Bible, this verse is going to be up on the screen. But these are the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to pick up in verse 19. Christ said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so what Jesus is doing in this verse is he's, he's kind of drawing back the curtain. He's shining a light on a battle that's going on. And it's a battle between, in one corner, Christ the King Eternal Jesus, versus in the other corner, we'll call him King Money. And both these kings want to rule our hearts and they call for our allegiance and they make promises to us and they say that in them that we'll find life and they want our allegiance and they both want to sit on the throne of our hearts. And what Jesus is saying in this verse is that the reality is that you can't love and serve us both. I'm drawing a line in the sand and you have to choose who your king is. It's going to be possessions or money or it's me. You see, Jesus in, in the gospels, in his ministry, he pays special attention to money and possessions. Like if Jesus planted a church today in Oklahoma City and you went online and you read reviews about it, you would certainly find a review where somebody was like, this guy talks about money an awkward amount of time. Like he talks about it a lot. Once a month, it's a sermon about money, right? So why did he do that? Why did he hold it up so intently and intensely and so often? And it's because Jesus pays special attention to money because he knows it's significant for a few reasons. And the first is this, that money reveals our heart. Right? It's, just, it's just paper and metal, right? It's, it's wood and ink and metal. But we have decided as, as a culture, as it was in Jesus' time, that that money represents value and worth. And so we exchange that paper and metal for, for things that we value. So when we, what we spend money on, it reveals what we hold as valuable in our hearts, right? So for example, we value life, we value taste, and so our money goes towards food. That we value education, so our money goes towards tuition and books. We value community and, and hospitality and friendship, so our money might go to dinner parties and drinks with friends. We value entertainment, so our money goes towards Concert tickets, thunder tickets, Netflix, right? We value the gospel. So our money goes towards the local church so that the poor would be taken care of and the gospel would be proclaimed and our brothers and sisters in Christ could be, could be cared for. You get the idea, right? So what Jesus is saying is he's saying that if, if you want to know where your treasure is, you follow the money. You follow the money and there you will find your heart. 
And so he holds it up first and foremost because money reveals what we value and we treasure with our hearts. But he also holds it up because it can be hazardous to us. You know, in verse 22, when Jesus is saying that the eye, if it's good, your body's full of light. If your eye is bad, it's like your body's full of darkness. Well, what is he getting at there? It's, it's just simply this, that if you were blind, no matter how much light poured into this room, if you were blind, you would be in utter and total darkness. You wouldn't be able to see. And so what God is, is, is warning us in this passage, Jesus in love is saying that king money is like a cobra that spits venom in your eyes. And so you can't see his danger. You can't see him coming. You are, are often not even aware of his presence and the fact that he's wanting to take seat of the throne of your heart. And that's one of his clear and present dangers that he presents king money to me and to all of us, even now. You're thinking, man, this isn't relevant to me because X, Y, Z, and I'm, 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 I'm just appealing to you and to my, in my own heart that, that this is for each and every one of us today because Christ knew that, that king money is, is sneaky and he's dangerous, and, and one of the ways he does that is he doesn't even uh, often allow us to be aware of his presence and his danger to us. You know, there's this guy in Luke 12, there's a story of this guy that, that runs to Jesus who is blinded by king money, and he comes, and his request is this, Jesus, tell my brother to give me my money. He's in this dispute over an inheritance, and his, his ask of God is, hey, I want you to tell my brother to give me what's mine. And what has always kind of struck me about this moment is you've got to just put that in the context of what we've seen Jesus do in the first 11 chapters of Luke that leads up to this. This is Christ who has healed the blind so they can see. This is Christ who has healed the the lame so they could walk. This is Christ who has taken a snack pack and fed 5,000 people. This is Jesus who has raised two people from the dead. He goes up to a little girl's bedroom, takes her by the hand, and lifts her out of death. He comes up on a perfectly good funeral of a widow for her son, and he ruins it by raising her from the dead. And so this man has an audience with that man, and his request is, tell my brother to give me my money. And Jesus says, hey, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to get mixed up into what the inheritance is about or what the trust and the will says. But in love for you, I'm going to tell you this. I'm worried about you. You need to watch out. You need to be on guard. You need to look out for all kinds of covetousness. Because life, Jesus says to this man, doesn't consist of the abundance of your things. Life isn't about how much you can gather together, how much money, how much stuff you can get. In John 17, Jesus says, life is about knowing and worshiping God. And so Christ in love tells this man who's asking for money a story. He tells him a parable and he says, there was a rich farmer who worked and his harvest just absolutely killed it. He had a killer crop. It, it had such a return on his investment, such an abundance that came in from his work when it was time for the harvest. He was stressing because he didn't know what to do. He said, what am I going to do with such an incredible gain? And he says, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns to store all this gain. And I will spend the rest of my life eating and drinking and making merry. 
And so Jesus picks up the story in Luke 12, 20, and this is how he ends it. He says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I mean, the message of of Christ in this story is that this rich farmer is, is literally a damned fool. So that's, that's intense. It's, it's, it's quite the story. And so why? That's the question. Why is, is, is Christ holding this up? Is he saying he's a damned fool because he was rich? By no means. Is he calling him a fool because uh, he, he had a profitable business that was successful? No, thank God for profitable businesses. Is he even calling him a damn fool because he built bigger barns? Not necessarily. He's calling him a damn fool because of of his heart. Because we see that he used, by the way, he used the increase. It showed that he showed no richness towards God whatsoever. It was his absolute dream to be like a black hole that was going to spend the rest of his existence consuming until the day he died. And so God is saying that money can be hazardous because it can lure us, lure us out of love for God. It can lure us away from treasuring God. And Jesus is saying richness towards God means that we don't lay up treasure for ourselves like this rich farmer, but we lay up treasure in heaven. That life isn't about acquiring stuff, but life is about knowing and worshiping God in Christ. And so that brings us to our, our third point as to why Jesus pays, pays special attention to money. And that's this, that you know, it's important to say right off the bat that the Bible never teaches that money is evil. It never teaches that created things, that it's evil to enjoy them. God made them. But what the Bible does teach clearly is that money just makes an evil God. It's no replacement for the true king. And so Jesus is, is saying here, one of the reasons he's holding up money so often is that he's saying, look, it can be a helpful and a powerful tool when it comes to worshiping me. Like, like a guitar in the hands of Will Gaines, right? Which is an excellent instrument to be used to praise God. That money can be used as an instrument to glorify God and you experience joy. That if Jesus is our king and rules our hearts, we're free from serving money and able to use money in deeply significant ways. And so that, that's, that's my heart for us today as a people. Like I'm, I have a, a father's concern for us. And what I'm fighting for today is our joy that we would know the beauty and the joy of what it means to use money as an instrument of worship to proclaim the goodness of God. So money can be helpful, and for it to be helpful, I'm just going to quickly hold up three things for us to see today. Three biblical truths that we need to see for money to be helpful. And the first is this. It starts with the gospel. We need to see the generosity of Jesus. Like historical fact that the best gifts ever given are gifts given by kings, right? Whether that's like the hanging gardens given by Nebuchadnezzar to his wife or the fact that one day in 1975, Elvis gave away 14 Cadillacs, like half of which were just to strangers. Like whether you're the king of Babylon or the king of rock and roll, you give good gifts. It's just facts, right? So how much more 
is it true that Jesus, King of Kings, is the most generous giver the world has ever and will ever know? Like, he gave us creation. He made us in his image. Like, around Christmas, we are furiously generous because we celebrate the fact that he gave of himself the incarnation. He became a baby and lived a life as a gift to us. He gave us the cross He gave his his body and poured out his blood for us. He gave us forgiveness and grace and redemption and adoption when we believe in him. He sent us the Holy Spirit who gives us spiritual gifts. He's giving us the kingdom. He's given us each other. He's He's given us every good and perfect thing. He's giving us life itself. And when the wages of sin were death, the free what gift of God was life, eternal life in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave. Like Jesus is a giver. God is a giver. And what that means for us is that when we are struck by the grace of God, when we experience this furious generosity of God that is the grace of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ, and when we receive that gift, it it strikes us in such a way that we, in response, we thunder and we boom with generosity in response to that. Like when we are struck by the lightning of the grace of God, we want to thunder with generosity in response to that. And that generosity is worship. Paul, talking about the church in Philippians, or writing to them, and their generosity said that it's a fragrant offering, acceptable worship that's pleasing to God. But the early church was marked by, known by, its generosity. This emperor, Emperor uh, Julian, who came into power uh, a few hundred years after the church was birthed in Acts, he was super upset with the fact that so many people were becoming Christians, and he wrote this in a letter to his friend. He said, for it's disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans or Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. He's saying, one of the reasons so many people are becoming Christians is because they're so generous. They're not only taking care of their own people, they're, they're loving and giving towards everybody. Tim Keller said this about the early church. He said the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in its day. The pagan society was stingy with money and it was promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And Christians came along and they gave practically nobody their body, but they gave practically everybody their money. So the early church was scandalous in a, 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 it was generous in a scandalous way. And so my hope for us as a people, Frontline Church, here downtown, in South Oklahoma City, in Shawnee, in Edmond, my hope for us as a people of God is that we would be promiscuous in our generosity, right? That we would be a people who can't keep our wallets in our pants or purses or or whatever, right? (laughs) And that in doing so, That like in the early church, people would see how peculiar that is and how different that is and how strange that is and that God would be glorified in that. That because we've been struck with the grace of God, we would thunder with generosity and praise him and that our bank statements, our ledgers would read like hymnals. Now I've got this friend um, who's a community group leader at Frontline and um, he's he's a sweet guy. I got to pray with him. I remember recently when we had a, a sermon, he came up for prayer afterwards with tears in his eyes because this, he felt like the Holy Spirit had given him a picture of his kitchen. 
just filled with children, filled with the children that he was going to have, filled with children that he felt like God was calling him to foster and adopt. And so with that dream in his heart, um, he and his wife went to buy a new house to make room for the children that they want to, to have filling up their, their uh, kitchen in their living room. And this is a guy that is like, he's, he's a peculiar dude. Like you, you, you people, you know, some of you might be this person, but like you on the, on the drop of a hat can like say your credit score. You know, you, you get flush with excitement when you think about spreadsheets and budgets. Like, this is my friend. Like, he knows what's going on financially in his life. He takes it real serious, and, and um, he's growing in his generosity. And so through that process of getting that loan for that home, he was freaked out then that he got this call from the lender and said, hey, we have some questions. Some things are kind of concerning. You need to come in and talk to us about it. And so thoroughly freaked out being the guy that he is, he, he goes down to sit with him. And they say, look, we just see some things that we have some questions about. We see here that you are regularly giving month in and month out to this organization called Student Mobilization. And, uh, you know, on your application, you said you didn't have any student loans. And we also see that you're regularly giving to this thing that in your budget, it says frontline. We have no idea what that is. Um, is that a credit consolidation? You know, is that a loan? Because um, it wouldn't be a church, of course, you know. Are you just buying a lot of flea and tick med- medicine for your dog? Like, what's, what's going on with the frontline? <laughs> and there were, there were a few other expenses, and they were like, hey, we've got some questions about these. And so he was like, oh, I can, I can explain it. Um, student mobilization is actually a, a missionary organization. That, uh, and, you know, I sponsor, they've got some, some people on campuses in, in the southern United States. They're, you know, spreading the gospel uh, on college campuses. They have, they have missionaries in India. And my wife and I, we sponsor a few families. And Frontline, believe it or not, is named my church. And so that's our regular giving. And there are a few other things. And the, the lender was like, oh, okay, well, that, that makes sense. I just never seen anything quite like that. And, you know, he didn't share that on stage in front of everybody on Sunday, but he shared it just to, to his pastor that, that I would be encouraged as to how he's growing in generosity. And that was a beautiful day for him because he got to share with that lender why he gives that kind of money. And he said, that is the, my favorite thing that I get to do month in and month out is, is give that with my wife. And he got to share why he even wants that home that they're buying because he wants to fill it with kids because he loves people because he's been loved by God. So I want to invite those of us who are in Christ today to examine our lives, to literally look at our ledgers and ask, do we read worship in there? Are there artifacts that we love God, love people, push back darkness, that we, that, that we want to love his church and love the poor? And if not, my charge to you today isn't get your act together and try harder. My charge to you today is first and foremost, remember how we've been struck by the grace and the furious generosity of Christ Jesus. Remember how giving and how lavishly gracious our Savior is to us. Be struck by that. Be awe in that. Be in in wonder of that once again. And then boom with generosity and worship in response to that. So the first thing we want to do to have money be helpful to our hearts is see the generosity of Jesus. The second thing we want to see is God's ownership of everything. Like scripture is explicit from Genesis to Revelation that everything belongs to God. David, who knew that, prayed like this in 1 Chronicles 29. He said, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power 
and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all, both riches and honor. They come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. That is a prayer from a man that knows that everything belongs to God. In Psalm 24, God says, the earth is mine and everything in it. In a sarcastic way, like he does at times, God in Psalm 51 says, if I wasn't hungry, if I was hungry, I wouldn't ask you to feed me. Like, I've got it. Everything is mine. Deuteronomy 8.18, God says, even your ability to work is a gift from me. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, it says that those of us who are in Christ, that we're not our own, that we've been bought with a price. So what does that mean for us? It means that if God owns everything, which he does, and that's the clear, again, message of scripture from front to back, that we are stewards. Since God owns everything, that leads us to consider ourselves stewards of what belongs to God. So I've been a covenant member of this church for 12 years. I've, I've been a pastor here coming up on nine years. But prior to that, what I did for a living, and I loved it, was I got to be on a team of financial advisors. And our niche really was taking care of widows. And so these widows would um, entrust us with their life savings that they and their husbands had, had built and saved, and they would give it to us as stewards with a will and opinions about what we should do with that money, and they would trust us to take care of it for them, to honor their will, to treat it as theirs. And if I ever got twisted, or anybody on that team ever got twisted as to what, uh, who that money belonged to, that was a crime, right? We were in Bernie Madoff land, you get, you get into prison for doing that. Financial advisors do that all the time. And the first thing they do with that money is they, they get plastic surgery and they go hide, you know, in Brazil, right? Because they know it's a, it's a crime. That is not stewardship. And so since God owns everything, the question that we in Christ have to ask ourselves is not the ugly question of what do I want to do with my money? And we generally recognize that, that that's not the best question to ask ourselves. But what I find myself asking myself too often is still a bad question, which is, what do I want to do with God's money? But we need to actually go to the good question as stewards, which is, what would God have me do with God's money? See, imagine if that rich farmer in that story that Jesus told, instead of saying, soul, So what we need to do is build bigger barns, save everything, not to glorify God, but just to to consume and and to, to be comfortable and to live for myself. Imagine if instead of that, he would have prayed, God, God, I have been struck with your generosity. You've been so good with me. I'm a farmer. I can't make it rain. I can't make it grow. All of this gain is because of you and your goodness. And I recognize that everything belongs to you. So I'm coming to you a man that's been blessed, that has abundance, and I'm coming and I'm saying, help me glorify you with what you've given to me. That this gain isn't mine to do with as I please, but I want to make you famous with this, God. I want to glorify you with this. I want to do good works and bless people and love people and push back darkness. I want to see you worshiped, God. He wouldn't have been a damn fool then. He would have been blessed and wise if that's the place he took his heart and his prayer. 
about a year ago, I got an invitation in the mail, and um, it was from a, a good friend of mine that's in community group with me, and he sent out about 10 of these invitations, about five of these invitations to, to couples. And my wife, Anna, came to this <laughs> with me, and we kind of knew that they wanted to, to just process some stuff, um, but we didn't know exactly what it was about. And so it was for a brunch Saturday morning. So we show up at our friend's house in our community group, brunch Saturday morning, and it's like legit. They've got mimosas. They've got like plates of bacon, egg casserole. I'm like, I, I don't know what we're going to talk about, but I'm having a good time. So it was, it was a good morning already. But then they lead us into their dining room and their living room, and on their dining room, they have blueprints spread out. And then they give us a binder. Each one of us gets a binder. And it has um, their plans down to how much the faucets are going to cost for the house that they're wanting to build. That's section one of the binder. And then section two of the binder is three months of their family budget. What they make, what they're saving, what they're spending, what they're giving. And we had no idea what we were walking into, really. We certainly didn't ask, and it was kind of awkward at first. It was like, okay, I know what you make and what you save, and I know, you know, how much your appliances are going to cost in your new house, right? It's kind of weird. But they said to us, look, everything that we have belongs to God, and we want to glorify him. And so we want you guys to pray with us, walk with us, and speak into our stewardship so that God is glorified. And like they changed the plans of their house based on prayer and counsel. That they submitted their, their saving and their, their spending and their giving and had friends that, that spoke into that for the glory of God. Because they knew what the owner of everything loved. When Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, God loves a cheerful giver. And more than the house of their dreams, they wanted to glorify God and, and do something that he loves, which is give cheerfully. And so don't get nervous. Like the community group uh, guides have already been written and they don't include you bringing your budget or anything like that, right? So you can stop giving the stink eye to your community group leader. Like take a deep breath. It will be okay. You don't have to do that just like that. But my charge to you today is this, that you would ask yourself the good question if you believe in Jesus. That you would ask yourself the good question, God, what do you want me to do with your money, your possessions? this paycheck that I'm going to receive, this inheritance that's coming, this tax return that's coming, this bonus, it belongs to you. God, what would you have me do with it for your glory and for my joy? And the third and final thing, the truth that I want us to see that will help money be helpful to our hearts is something that we sang. God, take my heart and seal it for your courts above The last thing, the final thing, the third thing that we need to see for money to be helpful is see that our true citizenship is in heaven. This is what Paul wrote to the Philippian church in chapter 3, verse 20. He said, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, scripture all over reminds us that life is short. Where Anna and I live, it's by the biggest graveyard in Edmond. I pass it every day. On one side of the street is a park. On the other side of the street is a a huge cemetery. And so I I see life and death every time I pull in and out of my neighborhood. And it is a reminder to me, it's a blessing to me, that as James said, that life is like a vapor and it's gonna vanish just like that. 
And Jesus, knowing that, rooted in that, with a, with a love for people, said, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust will destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. He's appealing to a redeemed self-interest. He's saying, I want what's best for you. And what's best for you isn't to live life in such a way that it's all about accumulating stuff because that's not what life is about. Life is about knowing God, glorifying God, worshiping God. And as you do that, with this instrument that is money, that you actually send some stuff on ahead that's treasure in heaven. So what it means for us when we remember that our true citizenship is in heaven is that it means that we make eternal investments. One of my favorite books about God and money is a book by a pastor named Randy Alcorn, and it's called The Treasure Principle. Randy's a pastor in the uh, kind of Pacific Northwest And in this book, he tells a story about two graves in Egypt. One is the grave of a man named William Borden. And William Borden uh, was a Yale graduate. He was an heir to great wealth. And he had a passion, a burning passion, to bring the gospel to Muslims in the Middle East, specifically um, in in Africa, though, in, in Egypt. And he gave, over his short life, as we'll see, hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions. And he spent four months himself on the mission field. But at the age of 25, only after uh, being on the mission field for, for, again, four months, he contracted spinal meningitis and he died. And so you can go to Cairo today and you can find a tiny little graveyard of Christian missionaries. And in the corner of that graveyard, under a tree, is the tombstone of William Borden. And on his gravestone, it tells a lot about his love for God and his love for the kingdom of God and his love for Muslim people. But it ends with this phrase. It says, apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. And then you could jump in a cab and then you could take a a, a ride of mere minutes to the Egyptian National Museum. Because just about nine years after William Borden died in 1922, the most extravagant grave was found in the history of the world. It was the grave of King Tut, the boy king, died about uh, 18 years old, and he was the king of Egypt. And literally, in the truest sense of the word, literally, he was buried with tons of gold. Like he had a gold casket in a gold tomb, in a gold tomb, in a gold tomb. And so when they they found his his coffin and his tomb, 3,000 years later, they found it full of just extravagant, abundant treasure because Egyptians believed in an afterlife where you could take your earthly treasure with you. And of course, 3,000 years later in 1922, when they found that grave, that, that tons of gold and treasure was still there. And I've always been struck by the contrast of those two graves and those two men. And this is what Randy Alcorn writes about those two men. He says, Tut's life was tragic because of an awful truth discovered too late. He couldn't take his treasure with him. But William Borden, his life was triumphant. Why? Because instead of leaving behind his treasure, he sent it ahead. And so living next to a graveyard like I do, I, I see monthly at least funeral processions, and I have never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul, Right? And you'll never see that because we can't take it with us. Everything we have, the things that are most precious to us, our possessions, are going to at best go to someone else. More than likely, though, they're going to go to estate sales 
They're going to go to garage sales. They're going to go to thrift stores. And, and most everything's actually going to end up in the dump. But the amazing thing that, that Christ holds up is that when we use our money to worship him, to love God, to love people, and to push back darkness, we actually make eternal investments that pay dividends forever. I'll close with this. The, the pastor and the theologian A.W. Tozer says this. As base a thing as money is, it can be transmuted into everlasting treasure. It can be converted to food for the hungry and clothing for the poor. It can keep a missionary actively winning lost men to the light of the gospel and thus transmute itself into heavenly values. Any temporal treasure can be transmuted into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. And so I'll just close saying this. Christ the king, king money. Every other king calls you to come and die for him first. But Jesus is the only king that dies for you. That he had ultimate status, ultimate security, ultimate treasure, and he laid down that treasure He came to earth in a descent, in humility. He lost all of his treasure to die for something precious to him. The Isaiah 53 tells us by prophecy that that Jesus looked ahead and he saw that he was going to go through hell for us and he counted the cost as worth it. He looked ahead and he saw the result of his suffering, Isaiah says, and he was satisfied. He was willing to lose his treasure to gain his church. And when we are struck by what kind of king Christ Jesus is that will free us from the bondage of king money, it's not even a real king, it's just an illusion of our our sin and our, our, our quickness to run to worship the created things and not the creator. And when we are struck by the grace of God, that will free us from the bondage of any other king that calls for our life, but bring us to the king who actually laid down his life for us to make us his treasure. And so if you're a Christian today and you're struggling with worshiping king money, like at times I struggle with worshiping king money, we're invited to to run back to the king that that gives us life and life abundantly in Jesus. We can come to this table in a minute as Charlie invites us and we'll be struck by the grace of God when we remember his goodness that he gave of himself, that he poured out his blood. We can celebrate and honor the fact that God owns everything. It all belongs to him. And we can be thankful for our ultimate citizenship that is with him in heaven where our savior rules and reigns today. And if you're unsure if you're a Christian or if you're sure you're not a Christian, I'm thrilled that you're here today. You've done a brave thing coming to church to hear about the claims of of Jesus and and what this book says about who he is and what he's done. And so my, uh, my invitation to you today is to consider the fact that your soul is too precious and your life is worth too much to give to money. That Christ loved you so much that he gave himself so that you can have life. And that Jesus doesn't want your money. He actually wants much more than that. He wants all of you. But when you give him all that you are, you'll actually find life. You'll find something that is priceless. 
It will bring you something that money and possessions can never bring you. It will bring you eternal life in Christ.